report and the three previous weeks were youth focused on the subjects of truth and motivation and story. Um, and I almost just want to go back and do those three again because I enjoyed them so much. That was, that was like, uh, I don't know, there was something about those three weeks that was just, it was felt recreational. It was just fun. Um, so, uh, uh, but I think useful, uh, I think some pretty important and useful ideas for our youth and young adults to consider. But prior to those, so we're, we're talking like a month ago, we've had four weeks, Love the Hill report last week, three weeks of, of, um, of messages aimed at our youth and young adults. Prior to that, we had one week on elders and deacons. This morning, I intend to close out 1 Timothy. We've already moved into chapter 6 and some other topics. Uh, but uh, this morning, I want to close out 1 Timothy Next week, I intend to, we intend to start moving into 2 Timothy. Um, close out 1 Timothy with a, with a passage on elders and spiritual leaders. Uh, we're continuing our theme throughout this year of be the church. And so we're looking at what it means to be God's people in this, in this uh, subject of spiritual leadership that we're, we're going to learn from as Paul speaks about eldering. By the way... I guess this would probably be one other announcement just very quickly. Um, next week, it's going to be uh, Brother Randy who's going to share with you and take us into uh, 2 Timothy. <clears throat> he is finishing his, uh, his studies that will qualify him for ordination. And um, so opportunities to, uh, to speak are important to him and uh, very useful to him. And, uh, and he, he, um, he wants to, to continue uh, having opportunities like that on occasion. So this coming Sunday, I'm going to be out of town, and he's going to be sharing on Sunday morning. Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25? 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So this morning, I'm just going to go straight through the text, uh, literally verse by verse, with just a couple of thoughts from each verse. Try to do this as quickly as possible. Verse 17, first of all, <clears throat> it's important to note that the elders that are spoken of here are indeed members of the leadership body of the local church. This is the leadership body of the local church. Um, uh, there are probably some other translations that render the word elder in a different way. New American Standard is elders. These, this is the leadership uh, body of the local church. Secondly, it's important to note from this verse, that not all elders are tasked with teaching and preaching. Some are, some aren't. Some are to greater extent and others to a lesser degree. Notice that there are some elders who especially work at preaching and teaching. So it's not the case that all elders are preaching and teaching elders. That's not the case. The role of elders as a leadership body is to watch for men's souls, to provide 
spiritual guidance for the congregation and to care for the spiritual needs of God's people. But not all elders are equally tasked with teaching and preaching God's word. The third thing we see in this verse is that eldering is a noble work that is deserving of respect, uh, deserving of honor. So let me, let me make an application of that because of what I said earlier. If we equate uh, this kind of passage, uh, we say in our minds we're talking about uh, a relationship between spiritual maturity and spiritual leadership and certain positions that come with spiritual leadership. Let's just acknowledge that Scripture teaches a, a, a respect for certain positions by virtue of the fact that they're in that position. So let me say it this way. Children, uh, I've been talking to young adults and to youth. Children, let me urge you to honor your father and your mother. They are spiritual leaders in your life, and the work they do is honorable. The work they do is honorable. It's not easy, okay? It's not easy to be a parent. Um, parents, let's just take a second here. How many of you make mistakes? How many of you do things you wish you hadn't done? Can I just ask, how many of you parents are very comfortable with saying sorry to your kids? Let me beg you to get comfortable with that as fast as you possibly can. Say you're sorry. We're not infallible. We're not without error. We're not without sin. We're not without failures. When we do things wrong like everyone else, we participate in the, in the God-ordained process of repentance and being reconciled. And we exemplify to our children what it means to do that. And by the way, there's absolutely no sense in which a position of power is so high that it doesn't owe an apology when it sins against those that it serves. There's none. There's no position of power, nor is there any age difference that means that some people are exempt from asking forgiveness from others. If we sin, if we fail, if we do something wrong, we ask for forgiveness. We humble ourselves and we ask for forgiveness. But that being said, this is a noble work. It's a noble work, and it should be honored as such. So let me just throw out a quick tidbit to the kids. Children, you go home today. Go home thinking to yourself, I'm going to honor my mom and my dad today. I'm going to honor them. And ask yourself, how can I do that? How can I honor my parents? Eldering spiritual leadership is noble, and it's worthy of respect. And the fourth one is this. I, I have probably been overly sensitive to this for most of my life. Eldering is hard work. In fact, the word that is used here means labor. It means labor. Now, there's lots of different forms of hard work. Uh, I've said this before. I've mentioned this before. But I read an article uh, probably a couple years ago now. Um, uh, about uh, chess players, uh, it's been estimated in, in studying them, chess players will burn 6,000 calories a day during a chess tournament because your brain uses most of the fuel that you put into your body. It's an amazing thing. You wouldn't think that you could lose weight by sitting around thinking a lot. But it would seem that this is the case. In fact, there, were, there are many examples of chess players that have to uh, step out of tournaments because of the physical toll that it takes on them. They lose so much weight, they get so exhausted that they just got to step away. They got to step away. I'm saying all that to say there's a, certain, there's a certain difficulty to physical labor that everybody recognizes as labor. But there's a very different kind of labor that comes with mental kind of work. And to, and to sit down and, 
and study long hours is not an easy thing to do. It requires a lot of energy. And let me add something to that. Being involved with, with spiritual needs of people takes something else different out of you. It's not just about energy. There's a certain, there's a certain weight. So let me, let me just, uh, because I know I can do this um, with, uh, with, with a great deal of ease. If you have children above the age of 12, how many of you have ever carried a burden for a child? Just, you recognize something in that child, and it burdens your heart for that child, and that burden rested on you, it seemed, day and night. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That's a spiritual leadership labor. Why? Because, well, listen, prayer is work. And living with a burden on your heart takes energy. It takes strength, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's an energy that is required when we take upon ourselves the responsibilities of, of caring for people spiritually. So, so um, listen, one, one, one little uh, uh, addition that I could throw out here would be this. Moms and dads, I hate to break this to you, but if you want your spiritual leadership in your home to be maximized, you got to spend some time in the Word. you got to study. you got to spend some time in Scripture. you got to pay some attention to God's Word. You need to fuel yourself. You need to feed yourself. You need to prepare yourself. And yes, it's going to take work. And yes, it means adjustments to your schedule. And yes, it's going to mean a certain amount of sacrifice. And yes, we all have to do it. Yes, we all have to do it. Some of us to a greater degree for other reasons. But the point is this, that spiritual leadership requires certain things of us. And it will always require hard work. You can't coast and be an effective spiritual leader. You can't maintain that forever. There's energy that is required to pay attention to and to grow in and to be effective at spiritual leadership. You can't just sit back and take it as it comes. You have to be engaged. I want to pause here for a second. Um, I have been around long enough and had enough conversation to know that there has been, a, that there has been in some men a certain mindset that says something like this. Hey, I get up in the morning and I go to work. I work hard all day. That's my responsibility to my family and I do it. I've got to tell you this. The, there's more to your job. And I don't mean that to place a burden on you. It's just a reality. Our homes, our families need spiritual leadership, and it doesn't come close to ending with going to work and providing and paying the bills. It doesn't come close to ending there. We have to engage ourselves in the spiritual needs around us. Yes, it requires energy. Yes, it but uh, get used to the idea. Um, I, I have a book on my shelf called Leadership Pain by Samuel Chand. The basic premise of the book is, you want to be a better leader? Increase your pain tolerance. Because the two are directly related. More leadership requires the willingness to accept greater degrees of discomfort. You just have to make up your mind that that's going to be part of the deal. And, and we have to come under a conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, as spiritual leaders, there is hard work, labor, that is going to be required of us. And we have to do it. It's not going to happen if you wait around for the quote-unquote spirit to move you. The spirit has just moved you. Amen? He spoke to us through the word. Okay? This is what we're called to. I will do the other verses more quickly. Verse 18. Spiritual leadership 
can be a compensated life's work. That is a career calling. It's legitimate for some to make their living this way. I'm saying that again because I'm going to say this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the youth to give me their attention again. Please, youth, young adults, by the way, increasingly, increasingly, people are being called to ministry in their 20s, early in their careers. They're getting established, they're coming out of college, they're getting into the workforce, and then they're stepping back and they're asking themselves, what do I really want to do with my life? I want to tell you that we have gotten creative about this and there are pathways to get you from your current work environment to career ministry if you feel like the Lord is leading you that way. And I just want to talk to our children and youth and beg you to be open for God to call you. Be open. Ask yourself the question, Lord, is this something that you would want from me? Would you want me to devote my life to the work of ministry? Is this something that I would have a calling upon my life for? I want to urge you to think about it, to think about it that way. I want to guarantee you that there are no ideal jobs in life. Everything has an upside and everything has a downside. There's, there's effort, energy, work, challenge involved every way you turn. But I've also got to tell you that, that to serve the Lord in this way is an incredible privilege. And if you would, if you would say, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm available if you would call me. I urge you to put your heart before God and, and be willing for him to call you. Okay? So yes, it can be a vocation. It can be a career. Secondly, it's interesting that the words of this, this verse 18, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox while he's threshing. Well, it, it, originally, it originates first in Deuteronomy 25, but, um, but it was used by Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And what's interesting about it is that this, this, uh, this verse here, Paul quotes exactly, word for word, Jesus' version of this in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. He quotes it exactly. What do we get from that? Well, it means, first of all, that, that Paul recognized the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. That is, we should use the Old Testament Scriptures, bring it into the New Testament, and say, what does this teach us? Right. So he recognized the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. He recognized the authority of Jesus' words. He quotes Jesus directly. And... He recognizes the authority of Luke's record, right? He, he takes Luke's reporting for it. This is what Jesus said. I'm going to quote it exactly this way. I'm saying all that to say it's just interesting to note because uh, one of the arguments that you'll run into is, well, the Bible didn't even get put together until the 400s or the 500s. It was hundreds of years, just people sitting around picking books. That is so far from the truth. So far from the truth. In the apostles' day, they recognized what the authoritative sources were. They knew full well where to turn, right? They recognized, they knew who had walked with Jesus. They knew what qualifications were in place to say this scripture should be accepted as authoritative. This is an example of it. Paul quoting Jesus' words directly, taken from the Old Testament and given to us through the Gospel writer Luke. Pay attention to this, right? Because it wasn't just willy-nilly people making up what books belong in the Bible later on. This is an example of Paul understanding authoritative sources that had come before him. Verse 19. I told you this was going to be work to, to get through the facts of the... the just the, the informational part of this. Verse 19. This gets a little more heart-touching here if we, if we pay attention closely. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Notice, first of all, that there is a way for an elder to be corrected. You know why? Because none of us is above rebuke. None of us is, in rebu is above rebuke. By the way, 
Um, I believe that the American governmental concept of a balance of powers is legitimate and is actually important. That it's actually important. Because it's just too easy for individuals or even small groups of people to make massive mistakes. We need some balance of power. So we have to understand that in God's way of doing things, there is no such thing as someone that sits in a position that is beyond correction. There's, there's no such thing. We, we have to understand that there are systems in place that allow for needed correction when it's, when, it's, when, it's, uh, when it's pressing that there be something like that. There's a, there are systems that God has set in place for that to happen. Everyone can be wrong. No one is above correction. So there's a way for this to happen. Notice, secondly, that leadership does... Whoops, what did I just do? There we go. That, that leadership does get a certain benefit of the doubt. There's reasons for that. We'll see them in a moment. There's a certain benefit of the doubt. That is, we're given a specific instruction. Don't even consider an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses willing to, corro to, to corroborate this. Two or three people that have observed this and say, listen, we're, we're all willing to, to lend our voice of, uh, to this. The accusation or the complaint that is coming up is one that, that multiple people share. So there's a certain benefit of the doubt. Let me take one more second on this. Um, one of the frustrations of leadership is that you can't always explain everything to everybody. You just can't. And as a result, there will be times when people won't understand why you do some of the things you do. And that's part of what's intended here, that leadership has specific responsibilities and some, some difficult things to do sometimes, and that accusation is not something that should just be thrown around easily, loosely, quickly. We, we actually need some substance to this, because if not, the church can waste a lot of time with accusations that are just completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary, all right? So leadership gets a certain benefit of the doubt. However, this verse calls us absolutely back to this concept of church discipline in Matthew 18. That is, you get two or three witnesses. Now, in Matthew 18, there's a step before the two or three witnesses. If your brother has sinned against you, go to him and try to make it right. If he won't listen to you, and, and there's a sin question involved, you get two or three witnesses some, uh, some small number of people where you're not taking accusations public in front of the whole world, and you take just two or three people with you, and you ask two, two or three spiritually mature people to help arbitrate this case. What needs to be done here? And you get two or three people to help try to bring a brother, two brothers or two sisters or whatever the situation is, bring them back together again. Deal with what needs to be dealt with. And it's only as a last resort when, when all else fails that you bring a problem before the whole church and say, listen, there's a sin going on. I went to this person alone. We've taken two or three brothers and, and addressed it there. We're all in agreement that there's a sin issue here. The person is not responding to this. The church needs to get involved, and there's a, there's a wider pressure that needs to be brought to bear on this situation. This is one of those checks and balances things. Let me give you a, a, just a really brief example. One of the things that Scripture teaches is that as men, we have a role to be the spiritual leaders of our home. But when a man goes rogue and becomes a tyrant... He needs other men to tell him, you're not well, pal. Someone's got to rein you in. What you're doing's not right. And so a brother goes to a brother. And if that man is found to be sinning against his children and his wife and won't listen, then you take two or three. Hey, we're in agreement. You need to pay attention to this. What you're doing's not right. And as a last resort, you bring it to the church. 
Why? Because this is the checks and balances that God has placed within his church in order to keep things healthy for his people, to keep things well for his people. It's part of what, what God has called us to do as a church, to be willing, if necessary, to go through this process of church discipline. It's not popular. Nobody wants to do it. I'm not asking for, um, hey, let's figure out a way that we can apply this today, in a, uh, like a, a whole bloom of uh, accusations and need for church discipline. That's not the point. Um, it's just to acknowledge that it's part of what Scripture teaches us and is at times necessary. Verse 20. Verse 20. One of the interesting things about being a spiritual leader, because that's, what, that's what's being talked about here, Paul says in verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Now, that's a fascinating thing. Because generally, Scripture seems to point in the direction of something like this. The scope of the offense, of the offense is the scope of the, the revealing of the sin. That is, if I sin against you, then we can take care of it between you and me. But, but along with that special benefit of the doubt that leadership gets, there's also a special, a special requirement here. That if an elder will not respond to those two or three, boy, you better take it public, and you take it public right away. You rebuke them before all. Why? Because that person has a position of leadership that gives them uh, added influence and therefore added responsibility. And you, can't, you just can't let the sin go unchecked. You can't let the sin go unchecked in a spiritual leader. It has to be dealt with at some point. And so there's this, there's this um, kind of added responsibility. Why? Because as spiritual leaders, we can't afford to live lives that are something like, do as I say, not as I do. We have to live it out. So, uh, by the way... Um, I was just listening to the, uh, the latest episode of, of the uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill uh, podcast, Christianity Today. And this last, this last episode is largely, a, is largely about this right here. That there's a problem rampant throughout the church of a, of a culture of privilege among leadership that views itself as above rebuke, views itself as being allowed to sin indiscriminately, using the position to get what it wants, and, and, uh, and the, the terrible consequences of that. The terrible consequences of that. It's, it's not something that can be allowed to happen in the church. So the Apostle Paul says, as uncomfortable as it is, it'd be terribly awkward, those who continue in sin, that is elders, if an elder will not listen to the rebuke of two or three, if they're continuing in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that everybody will be warned against sinning. It's a reality that, that spiritual leaders have to deal with, the possibility of public rebuke. Spiritual leadership equals more responsibility. It doesn't equal more privilege. It equals more responsibility. All right? Verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Verse 21 here. The responsibility to rebuke an, uh, a spiritual leader is a very solemn one. That's why Paul says, don't forget that what you're doing you are doing in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels. Of His chosen angels, of the holy angels. So if I said to you right now, um, whatever you do, remember, you're going to do it in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of His holy angels, how many of you would say, I would think twice before I do whatever I'm thinking about doing? knowing whose sight I'm doing it in. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. Be very careful. Kids, be careful the way you talk to your parents. 
God's given them a position of leadership over your life. If you're going to make an accusation against them, remember that you're doing it in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of the holy angels. Speak respectfully. Use some care. Take it seriously. It's a very solemn thing to make an accusation. You know, sometimes we get so comfortable with, my mom is a... You better, you better remember that what you're doing is you're rebuking your spiritual authority and you're doing it in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of the holy angels. Be careful how you talk about them. Be careful. Right? Pay attention. Why? Because it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to level the charge against spiritual leadership. Notice, secondly that the ideas of bias and partiality uh, are, are, uh, that are present here are that biblical and church discipline should be applied consistently and equally regardless of position or personal relationship. That is, just because uh, a certain person is in a certain position or, or has a certain relationship with someone, they should not be able to get away with things that are sinful. If you would rebuke someone else for it, that is, if, if church discipline would be appropriate for one person, it would be appropriate for another person, no matter who it is. Church leadership is not exempt from this. Church leadership is not exempt from this. When church discipline has been undertaken the sentence of the church should be applied equally, and it doesn't matter who it is. No favoritism in this. By the way, um, one of the things that you'll find out if you read the Old Testament is that favoritism always causes problems. When parents have favorite children, look out. Problems are coming. Problems are coming. 100% of the time, problems are coming. We need to be... So I'm seeing some response here. It really has my curiosity peaked. Can I just do this for fun? How many of you, how many of you have, have had part of your family dynamic is conversation about who the favorite child is? How many families has that happened in? Everybody does that? Everybody has had that? Oh, I think your mom's favorite. Your dad's favorite. Everybody thinks someone else is the favorite, right? Um, uh, man, it, 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 just, it just, parents, you can't, you can't have that. The flip side of that is just to be real honest about things. Not everybody is equally equal to, is, not everybody is equal in terms of how easy it is to relate to them. Some children just expose themselves and they'll talk about everything to mom and dad. And if that looks like favoritism, that's a sibling problem. That's not a parent problem. Because I'd like to think that around here our parents have open door policies. And if you want to talk about something, mom and dad are right there. They're not going to play favorites. But if you make it hard, that's a you problem. That's not a them problem, right? Favoritism is always a problem. And so Paul warns us that in church discipline, favoritism has no place in the church. All right, verse 22. Don't lay hands on someone suddenly. In other words, in order to prevent these kinds of accusations, how many of you are just really looking forward to a, a really high-profile, exciting church trial and uh, some good church discipline going on? Everybody looking forward to that? I don't think anybody looks forward to that, right? Nobody wants to do that. And that's why Paul says, don't lay hands suddenly on anybody. That is, don't put people in positions of leadership quickly, easily, that you don't know well. And he gives us, uh, right, there, there's two reasons for that. One is, if you do it, you might find out later on that there were sins present that needed to be dealt with before they got, in, they got put in the position, and now you've got to do this uncomfortable thing that was unnecessary if you had vetted them properly first, right? So pay attention to vetting them properly first. Do that. Don't lay hands suddenly on any man. 
The second thing he says, and this is hard to accept, but he says, if you do this and you lay hands on someone suddenly and you put, put them in, in that position, there's a sense in which you share in their sins. That is, you're, you're, you share responsibility for the damage that their sin does. Right? If their sin causes damage to the body of believers, the people that put them in that position share the responsibility for that. That's a serious responsibility. So, go slow. Make sure you know the person. Don't lay hands on anyone suddenly. Verse 23. Man, there's a ton here. This would be a fun verse just to do all by itself, but I'm just going to do it quickly. From this verse, we learn a couple of things. Number one, Timothy was a total abstainer from alcohol. And number two, he didn't have good health. Both of those things seem to be true about him from this verse. Um, no longer drink water exclusively. So Paul seems to indicate that he knew about Timothy, that Timothy only drank water. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You're often sick. Okay? So... We have, first of all, that Timothy was probably a total abstainer, and he also had some health issues. Second thing that I want to point out here, and for those of you that were on the missions trip, this might have some, some particular significance. No, not everyone gets healed. I wish I could tell you that everyone gets healed. But no, not everyone gets healed. We should pray for everyone to get healed. We can ask. But not everyone gets healed. Not everyone gets healed all the time. Now what's fascinating to me about this is this. That Paul had many times prayed for people who got healed. Many times. In fact, for a certain period of time in Paul's ministry, healing was so much a part of his ministry that, he, that things he had touched would be sent to someone and they would be healed. Crazy. But, but this person, Timothy, that Paul refers to as his own son, that he had a super close relationship with, for some reason, with all the, all the times God had used Paul to heal people, the one closest to him, Timothy, doesn't get healed. He doesn't get healed. Not everybody gets healed all the time, and I don't have explanations for whys. I don't know why some people get healed and others don't. I'm not privy to the counsels of God that way. I don't always get to know the reasons why. But the fact of the matter is, not everyone got healed all the time. Here's an interesting question. What do we know about Timothy's character from early in this study when we touched on 2 Timothy, that first chapter, a little bit? Just throw out a few words. What describes Timothy's character? Timid. Timid. Any other words come to mind? Reserved. Was he super confident and lacking in confidence? Does he seem to have had an issue with some fears, insecurities? This is just a question that I think naturally comes to mind. I wonder if some of his stomach issues were related to the fear issues, insecurity issues. I wonder if there was a relationship there. I just wonder. But you know what's fascinating to me about it? Is that if that was the case, if there was some relationship between his physical issues and his emotional issues in his life, Paul doesn't expose him at all. Paul doesn't mention that. Listen, the fact that the question comes to mind, there's two possibilities. One is, it might be a wise question to ask. The second one is, it might be a judgmental question to ask. I don't know. I don't know this about Timothy. Paul does not expose him. But what Paul does do is offer him physical help as other issues are being dealt with. Paul says to him, use some wine for medicinal purposes for your stomach's sake. 
while I'm also teaching you that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In other words, we're going to treat the whole person here. We're going to minister to the needs of the entire person here. This is a beautiful example of Paul discipling Timothy on every, on every level. Why was Timothy not a wine drinker? I have no idea. But if Timothy had certain qualms and certain, certain, um, certain convictions about something, the Apostle Paul is gently saying to him something like, you know, it would be okay for medicinal purposes for you to do this. You need some help. Get some help physically. And so Paul encourages uh, Timothy this way. Notice here, fourthly, that what I'm saying this morning is not building a case for or against being a teetotaler. That's not the point. The wine that Paul's talking about in this instance is medicinal in its use. But you also have to admit kind of up front that that means that even if it's only limited to medicinal use, that complete abstinence is not what's primarily taught in Scripture. Drunkenness is a sin. And I want to do this, I want to do this as clearly as I can. I don't know how many of you have had these conversations with people. What's the legal limit for blood alcohol levels in Pennsylvania? What is it? 0.08. So here's my way of saying it. When even unbelievers know that you've got to have some way of determining drunkenness, then there's a way of determining drunkenness. Okay? It's not legalistic. When the Bible says, do not be drunk, what does it mean? It doesn't, I, this is just my suspicion. You're sinning if and only if you pass out. Do you think that's too extreme of a, of a measure? I would think so. Right? So, so my, my point is simply this. They didn't have blood alcohol levels in that day. But somehow, responsible people were expected to be able to admit drunkenness, to recognize it. And I would just say this. When it starts to affect you, your thinking, your, your personality, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. The point here is simply this. We have to be able to say, we as believers know what sin is. And my brothers and sisters, whatever position you take on, on alcohol, complete abstinence or not, don't play games with yourself. The warnings of Scripture are many and they're serious about the dangers of strong drink. We can easily fool ourselves with these issues. The call of Scripture is for us to be sober-minded people. Sober-minded people. In control of our faculties. Unimpaired in our judgment. And it's a serious call that Scripture has for us. So notice that Paul says to him, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. A little wine. Why? Because he's concerned about making sure that Timothy stays within healthy boundaries for him. All right. So here's how we close this morning. Verses 24 and 25 really say the same thing. But one says it about sin, and the other, in the second verse, talks about good deeds. But it says the same thing about both. What does it say? It says that both sins and good deeds are not always immediately evident. All right? Confession time. How many of you, I think this is okay to do in front of our kids, how many of you were good at getting away with things, hiding things when you were young? Thank you. How many of you seem to got, you got caught everything you did? You're one of those ones who just got caught. Everything you did, you got caught. Okay, there's some of, the, some of those too, right? Some of us, we're just good at getting away with things. We're good at it. We're good at it. The point is simply this. 
Neither sins nor good deeds are always immediately evident. Neither one are always immediately evident. Some people are highly, highly skilled at hiding their sins. Highly skilled at hiding their sins. Some people have practiced this and they do it very well. By the way, some people do good, good deeds behind the scenes and they do it without any fanfare and no one ever knows where it came from. No one ever knows. Can I just tell you this? If we're really honest about it, maybe the right way to say it would be something like this. Most of us don't know nearly as much about the people around us as we think we do. We just don't. Most people, and this is probably appropriate, most people, even if they aren't hiding their sins, only expose their sins to a certain limited number of other people. And most others know nothing about it. And that's fine. In most instances, that's fine. Some people hide their sins from everybody, and that's not fine. That's not fine. But I got to tell you that I think we're going to be shocked someday when the good deeds of some get exposed that nobody had any idea about. Some people that just served in the background and did things that nobody ever noticed, nobody ever saw, nobody ever praised them for, nobody ever, ever gave them credit for. But they just did it because they were doing it unto the Lord. We really only know so much about each other. Both sins and good deeds are not always immediately evident. But let me close with this. Neither sins nor good deeds can be concealed forever. I want to promise you this. Neither sins nor good deeds can be concealed forever. I want to tell you exactly, I want to tell you exactly how long it's possible to hide your sins. For some, it might be possible for them to hide their sins exactly one lifetime. But that's the, that's the maximum. If you hide your sins for a whole life, and maybe you will successfully get away with that, I want you to know that the very next second, you're going to step into a place where you can no longer hide. Where there is no hiding. And so Paul says, you need to know that the sins of some are quite evident. They go before them into judgment. But for others, their sins follow them afterwards. Some people, their sins are there for all to see. And they go before them. They get exposed ahead of time. Some they follow afterwards. But the point of that verse is this. There's a judgment bar before which all sins will have to be addressed. And none will be hidden. The longest you can get away with sin is one lifetime. It's the longest. Now, I find it fascinating. We've talked a good bit about this around here. I, I'm not doing that to pat ourselves on the back. It just is what it is. Um, I stumbled across it by accident. Almost by accident. Let's just say God's providence. He put some people in my life. But the church talks very little about the judgment seat of Christ. But this is a doctrine that permeates the New Testament. That we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for the lives that we lived and we're going to receive according to the works they've done, we've done, whether they be good or evil. So the other part of that is, is I've already harped on the sin part of it. I, I think it's kind of important to harp on the other side of it for a second. Can I tell you this? How many of you have ever struggled with this, this feeling of no matter how much I do the right thing, no good deed goes unpunished. 
I do the right thing and I don't get ahead for it. Can I ask how many of you have ever struggled with that? Brother Randy back there in the public education system, you know, no matter how much I do what's honoring to God, I don't get, I don't get ahead because of it. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that there is no good deed, no good deed that goes unrewarded. When you do it for the sake of Christ, I want to guarantee you that there is a treasure being laid up for you in heaven. There is a reward that is coming your way. Children, this is so hard to do. Well, if, if I do what's right, I, you know, what if my parents don't see it? What if they, what, you know, do what's right? Youth, I want to I guarantee you you're sitting alone in your room somewhere and you make a choice to, to be obedient to God and to be faithful to Him, I want you to know that He saw it and if nobody else is ever going to be aware of it, you store it up in your heart between God and you and I want you to know that one day the thing that God saw in secret, He will reward openly. I want to promise you that. I want to promise you that. You need to know that when you do the right thing, no matter what it looks like in front of others, when in front of others you're being mocked because you turn the other cheek and you're such a wimp and they're insulting you for being like Jesus, I want you to know that the rest of the world can think of you whatever they want to think of you, but I promise you that the God of heaven is paying attention to you in that moment and he will reward you for it. It's coming. Because in the same way, that the longest you can go hiding your sins is one lifetime, the longest you can go without reward for your good deeds is also one lifetime. I want to guarantee you there's a reward on the other side. Guaranteed. Amen? Let me encourage you, spiritual leaders, to do the right thing. Let me encourage you to aspire to be spiritual leaders. Put your heart and your life before God. Live pleasing to Him. I want to close with a video. This video gives me lots of questions, but it also illustrates a very important point. Today happens to be uh, the day that the church worldwide is remembering Christian martyrs. It's a date on the calendar that is reserved for remembering Christian martyrs. I want to show you a really brief video. Judah, how hard is it going to be to get that up there? Okay, two seconds. Um, I want to show you the video. Oh, here we go. God, I don't... There is sound on it. I started to hear it come out, come, come, come out. If you can just have it up as loud as possible. No, don't do that unless... <laughs> God, I don't want to die. Who will take my place if I do? Jesus told his followers to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, to every nation, to the ends of the earth. John Chow was a teenager when he took his first missions trip and when he felt called to invest his life to reach the people of North Sentinel Island, who had violently rejected all previous contact with outsiders. John answered that call. Here am I, send me. For the next nine years, every decision John made was with an eye toward going ashore on North Sentinel Island. He served in multiple countries to gain missions and ministry experience. He trained in linguistics to help learn their language. He was certified as an EMT in the hope of serving the tribesmen medically. Once I said yes to Jesus, I was committed. I was all in. I believe that the measure of success in the kingdom of God is obedience. I want my life to reflect obedience to Christ and to live in obedience to Him. I think that Jesus is worth it. He's worth everything.
In 2018, with the backing of his missions agency, John went to North Sentinel Island. He knew the risks, but his passion for the North Sentinelese and his desire to be obedient to Christ drove him forward. Sitting in the boat, getting ready to go ashore, John penned a final note and a challenge to his family. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language as Revelation 7, 9 to 10 states. I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Within hours of writing those words, John Chow was killed by the Islanders. John believed that the measure of success in the kingdom of God is obedience, and he would be obedient to God's call, no matter the cost. Who will pay the price to go to every tribe? Let me just close by saying, there's a lot of questions that that video brings up. John Chow died where he did in 2018. And to my knowledge, no one's tried to set foot on that shore since. What do you think's gonna happen to the next person who does? He wasn't the first one to be killed there. You know, you ask all kinds of questions. And if you know that's going to happen before you even get the chance to open your mouth, is it the right thing to do to go? Was it the right thing for a mission board to send him, knowing that they were sending him to to his death? Why hasn't anyone else gone since then? Was he the only obedient one in the whole church? Should we be lining up to invade that place and do it in big enough numbers that they can't kill us all? I mean, there's just tons and tons and tons of questions. But I I think to close this morning, when you read this passage on leadership and on maturity and on what it means to be the church, what it means for us to be faithful, what it means for us to know that our sins will one day be exposed and our good deeds will also. That, that his charge to us that we would love nothing more than Jesus Christ and that we would consider obedience to be the measure of a life that's lived for the kingdom is a, is a very important call to us today. I don't know. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm not... I'm not I'm going to sit here and tell you that I'm really, really just hoping that when I go home today, one of my kids will say to me, Dad, I feel called to that island right there, and as soon as I can get there, I'm going. Um, Boy, that'd be tough for me to think about. But I want to say, um, children... I wasn't whistling Dixie when I said earlier for you to consider whether or not God had called you in some way to serve him. You know, if you end up getting called to a life of missions, you're going to be away from your family. I'm not going to hide the cost from you. You're going to go away, and you're not going to see him for extended amounts of time. But if that's what God calls you to, there's no better life than to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Go. And I'm going to tell you this. Parents, we should not, we see that call, we hear that call, we shouldn't hold our kids back. We should not let our tears be a barrier to their obedience to God's call. There will be tears, but they should be accompanied with, please go. And do what God has called you to do. Proud of you.
right? Why? Because spiritual leadership always has a cost. It has a price associated with it. The guarantee is that the reward is certain also. The reward is absolutely certain also. So I'm, I'm calling you this morning to say, Lord, help me to be obedient to you, faithful to you, in whatever way you have called me to be faithful to you. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for one moment? Moms and dads, please, please hear me and just take this one moment very seriously. If there's a sin in our lives that needs to be confessed before God and repented of so that we can lead our children well, men, husbands, if there's a sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with so that we can lead our families well, I beg you to repent fast now to cry out to God and say before I have to have someone come to me or two or three come to me let me repent let me deal with it quickly let me deal with it quickly it's a part of what is required of spiritual leadership to develop this kind of maturity. We cannot allow sins to roam unchecked in our lives. Lord, forgive me. Make it a matter of repentance quickly so that we're in a place that we can lead well and faithfully. Lord, I just ask this morning that with a, a little bit of a sober ending here, that you would speak to our hearts, not because I expect there to be big, gross sins in our lives, but Lord, just that we would be honest before you. And as spiritual men and women, Lord, there's just, it's just too easy. Our human nature is so inclined to justify things, to treat things as if they were no big deal. Lord, if your Holy Spirit puts a finger on some sin, in our hearts, our lives. I just ask that we would be quick to respond to you today, cry out to you for forgiveness. We would be quick to find a brother or sister that we can invite to walk alongside of us and to encourage us and to help us. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from evil. You taught us to pray that way. Deliver us from evil. Lord, I ask that, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be the kind of mature leaders that you have called us to be in whatever sphere of influence you've given to us. And Lord, for those that are, that are struggling, Lord, I... I have to confess, I remember very, very vividly the struggle in certain parts of my youth, feeling like I was viewed in certain ways and asking myself the question if it was worth it to do the right thing. And I just pray, Lord, that for those that are they're having any kind of struggle that way, that you would give them the courage to look for their reward in heaven and to be faithful to you, no matter how difficult it might be in the present tense, in the moment. And then, Lord, I just close asking that, that you would speak to our children and youth and that if there are young men and young women, Lord, that you want to call into your service, and that's to be their full-time vocation, Lord. Not that it's glorified above any other work. But Lord, there, does, there is a need for a next generation of, of leaders in your kingdom. And I would just pray 
that your spirit would lay hold of some hearts and that you would speak to them. And Lord, that you would give them a willingness to respond and to say, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to be sent. I pray that you would speak to their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of serving you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you, give you a great week, and we'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday.